Recorded live. Welcome, everybody, to episode four of Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren. And I'm Jim. And we have a special guest with us this week. We have Kathy from Just at H2O. Hello, Kathy. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? We're doing well. Before we get started, I will, we'll, we'll tease a little bit of news that we'll have coming up a little bit later in the show. Uh, this week, we have a scuba program, Boils, Boys and Boils. We, we don't want to boil anybody. The scuba no. program, Boys, Local High School Students. We have a pint-sized 10-year-old becomes a certified scuba diver. Uh, OFD boat request, dead in the water. And Japanese scientists create elastic water. But before we get into any of the news, we'd like to talk with our guest, Kathy. Uh, Kathy, thank you for coming on the show this week. Thanks for having me. Oh, most definitely. Uh, for for people who don't know Kathy, uh, Kathy owns the H2O Scuba Shop, and you have two locations? Yes, we do. One in Niles and one in Granger. Yep, and that's Niles, Michigan, and Granger, Indiana. Uh, we We wanted to have her on. This week to talk a little bit about servicing gear and what should we should be looking for this time of year. So with it now getting into the winter season and we're not too far off from spring, it's probably time that uh, many of us start considering about having our gear serviced. Right now is a really good time of year because if you get it in early enough before the crowd, you're going to get your equipment back a little bit faster than everybody else and you're going to be ready for that time when you just say, I'm ready to get water and you Exactly. For Jim and I, that's that's all year round. But for many many of our, our diver friends, they like to go when it's a little bit warmer. What type of gear should we have serviced? Is it everything? Uh, is is you know, uh, I, I know regulators and maybe BCs. What, what should they be bringing in when they go to have something serviced? Well, considering everything that's life support, so you want to bring in your regulator, your BC, and your any tanks that you might have. Those are considered annual service items. Okay, so so that's about every 12 months we should have those serviced? They recommend every 12 months for the average diver. If you use your equipment, you know, quite often, you might want to have it serviced more often than that, but that's usually the manufacturer's recommended at least once a year. And so most of the manufacturers base that on a one-year um, serviceability and maintenance. Okay. Now, so a regulator and BC, is there any other piece of equipment that we should be looking at this time of year? Is there any service that needs to be done to a computer or gauges? Well, computer and gauges, it, it depends on which type of computer or gauges you might have right now. Usually when uh, you bring in your regulator, the technician will will service your, your gauge spool uh, as part of their regular maintenance, which is there's a a small part that comes between the hose and the actual pressure gauge that has, uh, it's called a spool with a couple of O-rings there, and that's the area where the gauge and the hose connect, and in that area sometimes you'll get leaks. So that is really what I would consider part of the actual regulator service is it's connected to the regulator system. As far as computers are concerned, a lot of the computers on the market nowadays um, basically just require servicing or re replacing your battery when needed. And a lot of uh, service technicians are not going to do that now since most of them are user replaceable. 
it's not a user-replaceable battery that goes in your computer, then you're probably going to want to send it off to the manufacturer or certain service areas that deal specifically in computers that don't have a user-changeable battery in them. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Now, as far as the regulator, if I bring you a regulator in and say I bought it new last year, what type of things are you going to be looking for in this reg? Well, um, first of all, we're going to look for any parts that might be broken, split, or cracked, or have holes in them. So your mouthpiece, your hoses, those are items that we're going to we're going to do a visual check on, make sure that those are good. Um, we also will do a what I would consider a complete overhaul, depending on whether it passes a certain number of criteria. Um, we'll check the intermediate pressure of the regulator to check if that's in key with where it's supposed to be, um, check inhalation, exhalation of the second stages, and do a few checks on it first to kind of initially inspect what might need to be done with it. In most of the manufacturer's warranty, they do require that you actually do a complete overhaul once a year, which requires a lot more service. Some manufacturers only require you do that complete overhaul once every two years. So depending on your manufacturer and what you've purchased, you might be looking at a complete overhaul and or you might be looking at what we call an eight-point check, which is, again, just checking certain points, and if it passes all of those, it will go back out the door. Now, will the type of service you do depend on how often I use the regulator? If I do, say, 70, 80 dives in a year, is that different than somebody who only did five or six? Yes. I mean, Usually, we can tell when we look at a regulator what it really needs based on the amount of corrosion, um, you know, the amount of dirt. There's, you know, some different things that we can look at. If you tell us and say, hey, I've done a lot of dyes on this regulator, um, then we're going to automatically assume that it's going to need a, a complete service and just do it that way. I, I don't prefer to to get a regulator in the door and not do exactly what it's going to need before it leaves. So if it if it requires a, a complete maintenance and the manufacturer doesn't recommend it as far as it's not due for it, but it still looks like it's due for it, you should have it done. Now, do you have any horror stories about regulators you've got you've had in? Have you had a regulator that came in it was just so bad that there was nothing you could do with it? Oh, we've had several regulators like that. We've had uh, situations where we've put them in the freezer to try and get the parts to loosen up. As the parts freeze, they kind of compress a little, and so sometimes your parts will come apart easier when they're frozen. Um, we've had situations where we've left them in the ultrasonic clean cleaner for a longer period of time to see if we can get some of the corrosion off of them to actually try and get them apart. Um, there's been several times that we've had to basically say this is unserviceable. Now, what could somebody have done to prevent that? Well, most of the time you want to make sure, especially using it in salt water, that you give it a good rinse and that you do your annual servicing. Uh, most of the time when we get a regulator like that, we've had people who maybe, you know, were dying in the Caribbean six years ago, didn't touch touch it once they were done using it and put it in a bag and left it sitting. 
and once all that corrosion gets on there, it, it actually welds the parts together, and we can't really do anything for it. So you want to make sure you rinse your equipment thoroughly when you're done using it, and then have it serviced annually or, or maybe more than that if it requires it. Uh, now, now you mentioned saltwater. Do you see that a little bit less often up here in the freshwater? Yes, we see a lot less corrosion problems in, in this fresh water area. Um, salt water is very corrosive, but the local, the local water, fresh water, we don't, we don't typically have very many problems with it. Um, you know, most of the time what I see for local diving equipment is sand, lots of sand in second stages and first stages. Um, you know, basically it gets in everywhere. Yeah, well, if it's Jim or I, it's probably muck because we've been surfing along the bottom. <laughs> probably, probably. Now, as we talk about that, um, one thing that you hear people discuss uh, are environmentally sealed regulators or not. Can you tell us what the difference is between an environmentally sealed regulator and a non-sealed regulator? Basically, the environmentally sealed regulator has some type of a diaphragm that keeps the water separated from some of the internal workings of the regulator. Different manufacturers do it a different way, so you know you might see different configurations of it, but it's basically preventing the water from getting inside the inter internal workings of the regulator. So there's two main functions for having an environmentally sealed regulator. In, and that's considering just the first stage. It, one is it doesn't allow the first stage typically to freeze in cold water because you're not letting that water inside to freeze up. And secondly, it doesn't allow any water that might be corrosive, like salt water, inside the first stage to make the parts corrode. So you, you've got the best of basically two worlds, um, preventing both those from happening and that way your regulator maintenance is easier, your service technician is going to be a lot happier, and you're going to be a lot happier because you're going to have a less um, difficulty with your, with your regulator. So you would say that that's a, that would be on, on a list of things to look for in a new regulator if someone was to get one that you would recommend a, a sealed regulator then it sounds like. I would definitely recommend it, it both for local diving and for warm water Caribbean diving. It, it basically is good for both types of diving. In fact, I don't. There's only one regulator that I would sell that is not environmentally sealed, but I also sell it as a, a basically a warm water regulator strictly. That's it, and you wouldn't want to use it locally. Right. Now, when you're talking about at the end of a dive, rinse your regulators, is it simply as simple as it sounds just to rinse them, or, or is there any precautions that have to be taken as you're, as you're cleaning your, uh, your regulator sets? Well, basically, you, you do want to take one very important precaution, and that is leaving your dust cap in place while you're rinsing your regulator. That's that little piece that goes... Um, on top of the first stage that you screw the nut down on in, and it sets it down in there. Um, basically, if you don't replace that or put that in place, depending on your regulator, water will actually seep inside the first stage of the regulator, and that can be very bad for your regulator. Um, so you want to make sure that that dust cap is in place. The other thing is, is you, you really don't want to use like a high-pressure hose on it. You want to basically soak it maybe in warm water or rinse it with a, you know, a very 
um, soft um, hose. That way you're not pressurizing it in any way. And, you know, take a little precaution with it when you're doing it. Just basically, you can soak it, and that probably is your best bet. So treat it gently, no forceful water, and uh, make sure that you've got that dust cap in place. But other than that, it's a, a gentle wash, and you're done for your regulator, right? Correct, besides the annual servicing. Mm -hmm. Right, that sounds easy enough. Now, I just picked mine up. I had uh, I had my regulators serviced uh, after their first year, um, and it's uh, I'm in the auto repair business, and, and maintenance is key to keeping things going for a long time. And and it's a, it's an important thing to do. I can understand it and see the see the value in that. Uh, what else do you have to do? Say we were talking about BCs. Um, what would be done for that? Uh, do you inspect seals, straps? What do you guys do in an annual service for that? Basically, what you just said, we inspect all the different seals that that might be that might have. We blow it up, make sure that it holds air. Um, we rinse it out. We have a special BC Life, it's a special soap and conditioner that we use on the internal part of the BC that also kills germs and bacteria and anything that might have grown up inside there. Um, we'll check O-rings, seats, um, you know, basically looking for any type of uh, wear and tear, uh, holes, leakage anywhere, um, and, and then a general cleaning. Right, trying to make this equipment last uh, as long as uh, we can and, and have it still useful. Um, that's a good deal. Now, what about in our area? We have got uh, colder water than uh, around the rest of the nation, some of the southern parts. What, what should we look for in a regulator um, for the colder water? Is there anything special that we should keep an eye on? Well, again, that environmental seal, first stage. But also there are there are second stages, um, which is basically the mouthpiece part, that are designed for cold water use as well. Um, most of the time they have less metal parts. Some of them have actually heat um, conductors that are, are made in, in them that keep the second stage from freezing up as well. Just like you guys know, I know you've been doing some ice diving. Um, that would prevent the second stage from freezing up. But keep in mind, I know you probably know from doing your ice diving that you don't want to breathe on your regulator on the surface of the water because that will almost automatically give you a free flow freeze on a second stage. Right, that's having a little bit of that knowledge before you go out is uh, goes a long way. Um, so as we're doing anything else, what what can we do for for uh, any of our other equipment to help it last longer? Um, you know, the the things uh, most common we lose things that they have to be replaced. Um, besides our regular servicing that we would bring uh, our regular uh, regulators in and our BCs into you, uh, what can we do for the rest of our stuff? Uh, what would you suggest for say our wetsuits to help them last longer? Well, basically, one of the things I think you can use in general just for all your equipment is is making sure you don't leave it in the direct sunlight. That is definitely something that will um, reduce the life of whatever item it is that you're talking about, whether it be a mask or a pair of fins. Um, wetsuits in particular, we, they also make a special wetsuit shampoo that you can use that conditions the wetsuit and the material because wetsuit is a different material than 
you know, say a, another piece of clothing that you might be washing. So you want to make sure you get products that are made specifically for your item, and that way it helps to preserve the length of time that that item's going to last you. Um, specifically as well with wetsuits, you want to make sure you hang them on a very thick hanger, something that's got a wide um, uh, space to hold the wetsuit with because that way it doesn't cause any creases in the wetsuit neoprene because typically if you have wetsuit neoprene that has any creases, it's permanent crease. It will never go away and it's always going to be there. The other thing that I recommend for specifically wetsuits, especially for traveling and you know, even from putting it in your dive bag to go to, you know, a local quarry, roll your wetsuit up like a poster. Because if you take your wetsuit and you fold it in half, you're again possibly putting a crease in there and that's gonna gonna stay forever. So if you roll it like a poster, you're not putting any creases in the suit and it's gonna last you a lot longer as well. Gotcha. Now I can attest you were talking about some special uh care items or shampoo for your your wetsuit. Uh, I picked up some and I think it was the brand name was a McNett or something like that from uh, from your shop. And uh, I noticed a difference after the first time of washing my wetsuit in it or soaking it in it. Um, it smelled, uh, I didn't, won't, won't say it smelled bad before, but it definitely smelled better when I got done. Uh, has that been your experience with that product? Yeah, it smells better. You can, I think it even makes it feel softer. And um, it definitely helps preserve that material, so it's it's good for all reasons. And you know, you want to use that when you know you've maybe half a dozen or so dives, especially if you dive, you know, somewhere that might not be the freshest smelling area. Um, so it helps. There's also a product out on the market that helps take the smell out of neoprene if you have maybe a pair of boots or something that has a little bit of a stench to it. Um, they have a product, and I'm not sure the pronunciation, mirazinine, or anyway, it's a product that um, actually takes the stink out. I call it sink the stink, basically. So that, that helps with the smell. That's good. It sounds like uh, my boots, uh, they get pretty nasty after a while. Um, Darren, did you have any questions? Uh well, I, just commenting about the boots, I thought you said you had a pair of boots that were walking on their own. It, well, it's not, it, they smell like they used to, but whatever was making them walk since died, and it smells worse again. So, um, But, no, that that stuff that I've used has really made a big difference in the, way, in the way that stuff is. I can actually hang it up inside now without getting any complaints from the family. Yeah. Now, we were talking about dry suits. Now, I imagine that a dry suit is going to be similar to a BC as far as some of the servicing that needs to be done. Um, I think dry suit definitely is a, uh, a one of the items that you definitely want to take special precautions for, depending on what type of dry suit you have. Um, if you have any latex seals, you want to make sure that you're taking care of those latex seals. You want to make sure that you're using... Um, a soap that is, you know, not going to harm the material at all, uh, especially the sun on a dry suit, I think is, you know, really bad for the suit. You definitely want to stay out of the sun as much as possible. And one thing I didn't mention about wetsuits that you want to dry 
from inside out. And I think that's pretty common with dry suits as well. You know, if you've got any moisture on the inside of the dry suit, dry the inside first and then dry the outside of the suit. So you won't, and that's the same kind of with boots too. If you give that the boots a lot of air and let dry out pretty well, you shouldn't have as much of a problem with neoprene smelling. If you take your gear and you throw it back in your bag and leave it in there wet for three weeks, like my son's hockey gear, um, you're going to end up with some smell. <laughs> I, I believe that. I, I think I've experienced that a few times. You know that uh, you soak it in the tank and you forget it sitting there for a few days, and then, uh, then, then you got to go through and do a really good wash to get some of that out. Now, tanks. How often do your tanks need to be serviced? Well, tanks require at least an annual service called a visual. Now, visual inspection is where they actually take the valve off the tank and they look inside the interior of the tank to look for any type of corrosion. They also look at the exterior. Uh, of the tank to see if there's any dents, pits, um, anything that might show extensive wear on the exterior of the tank, as well as looking at the threading on the inside of it where the valve goes. Um, there's been problems in the past with aluminum tanks that were made out of a certain alloy that uh, the tanks were actually um, cracking in the threads, and they were susceptible because of the certain type of alloy that they use to manufacture them. So those are some of the things that we're going to be looking for when we do a, an annual or visual inspection. But you also want to watch for your hydrostatic date, and typically um, you are looking for a date stamped in the tank that you want to have less than five years old. So on that, you you want to try and probably do your visual inspection and your hydrostatic te testing done at the same time. And with the hydrostatic testing, what they do is they actually test the elasticity of the tank. They put it in a um, a type of water well and they overpressurize it. And once they overpressurize it, they test how much the tank expands and contracts. And if it's within certain specifications, they'll pass it. They'll put a new update on it and it's good for another five years. If they don't, then you need to take it to the scrapyard. Well, and like we heard a couple of weeks ago, you want to make sure that it's empty when you take it there. To the scrapyard, yes. <laughs> yeah, we there was a, an incident that somebody I heard about out that, yeah. went, went flying through. That would be a surprise. Yeah, that would. <laughs> imagine sitting at your desk and have a tank go through above the wall above you. That would be a, a shocker. Yeah. Now, you were talking that you've got another location. Now, on the web, uh, what's your web address there, Kathy? Um, well, you can get to it through our old web address, but our new one is www.justadh2o.us.com. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that one. I'm sorry, Jim, I talked over you. No, that's okay. I was just going to type it in right now as we uh, as we were talking. Since we have somebody from a scuba shop on, is there any new trends that we should be looking at this year? Hmm. Trends as far as in equipment? Or yeah, trends? as far as equipment or just in scuba in general. Is the training changing at all this year as opposed to the last few years? Well, um, Patty, I know, has um, implemented a new program where you do not have to teach the dive tables. Um, they are 
implementing dive computers into the classroom training now where they'll teach you how to use your dive computer versus using a set of, of dive tables. And I think that is definitely a trend for the dive industry that um, is is letting, telling us that we're taking a step forward because dive computers are definitely, I would think, a nowadays a not a recommended but required piece of equipment um, and so I think that's a very good step however what it does require is it requires the dive store to have um, the dive computers available for the students to use and that is something that we haven't been able to do as of yet um, because on a typical basis we might be teaching 30 to 40 students at a time so that's just not um, feasible for us right now, but that is one of the trends. The other trend, I think, in training in particular is um, online training. There are some organizations that are offering some online training, and um, that, I think, is another trend that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's giving people the opportunity to you know, if you decide you want to take up a scuba course and you're you're online at 2 o'clock in the morning and you say, oh, this sounds good, you can sign up right then and there and, and bring more people into the industry and perk interest a little bit quicker than having to wait to go to their local dive store the next day or that week. So those now are that, two things. Go ahead. Now, now that online training, is that mostly the book work or is that substitute some of the classroom? It basically substitutes almost all of the classroom work completely. The only thing that a student is required to do once they come to us and they've completed the e-learning um, e course is take a 20-question quiz, and then they're basically um, ready for their confined water and their open water. They've already taken the four quizzes and the final exam online, so it does basically take most of the confined or the book work out of that. Now, is the cost pretty similar to do it both ways? Uh, actually, it is. It, there's a little bit of a misconception with e-learning right now um, because the e-learning program. Basically, when you buy an e-learning program online, you're essentially buying the books and video, and it doesn't give you any type of a credit towards confined or open water because um, you're basically just doing the book work with, with Patty, essentially. So it's, it's a little bit confusing because people will come to me and say, well, I've already paid you know, for the course, but they don't understand. And they've paid for the academic portion of the por the course. When you come to me and you want to buy the book and the video, essentially what you've gotten online from Patty, it costs about a hundred dollars. Whereas on on e-learning, it's about a hundred and twenty dollars. Okay, so you're paying so, a little bit for the convenience. Yes, and and they might have changed the price recently. Um, I know last year it was a hundred and twenty, but I, I'm not sure what it is now. Okay. Uh, did they, other than that, did they add any new courses for this year? Uh, as far as the e-learning, they oh, e-learning. Yep. Uh, e-learning, yes. Well, I'm not sure if they added. I think they added it in 2009, but they added the enriched air course, which you can do online. And essentially, um, 
when you complete the enriched air course, you need to go to the dive shop. Um, you'll learn how to analyze a scuba tank and uh, do the appropriate paperwork, and then you can get your certification. So um, the enriched air course actually is one of them that doesn't require any pool training or any open water training. It's just strictly academic training. Now, I noticed that one of the lines you carried is now uh, selling online uh, with that Aris? Um, no, it's Aqualung. Aqualung. Yeah, Aqualung. Mm -hmm. And basically what they've done is they've um, developed their, from their own website, they've uh, put a um, grocery, you know, a, you can purchase equipment online through their website and pay for it. And you have the option of either picking it up at your local dive store or having it shipped directly to your home. So that way, um, you know, people, you know, I would want people to come in my store and pick it up so that I can help them with, you know, proper fitting, uh, maintenance, care, use of the equipment, you know, making sure that they're going to be happy with whatever the, the product is that they purchased. But you do have the option of just getting it right at your house. Now, if you get it at your house and you had a first stage and a, a, a second stage and, and your backup, that's not going to come all assembled. That's a, that would just come as pieces and still have to be put together, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it just makes sense to have it delivered direct to you so Correct. you can get it. Well, thank you, Kathy. That, that's some good information. You're welcome to stay on for this next section. We're just going to go through some of the items in the news, and you're, you're welcome to stay and comment. Okay. Um, actually, I kind of need to get home to my kids. So. Okay. I'm gonna, I'll well, listen uh, to it later. Yep, we'll, we'll have it up. It'll probably be about one in the morning when we have it up. And if you, we're we're now on iTunes, so it usually takes iTunes about eight hours after we uh, publish for it to get online. Okay, I'll check for it. Thanks for having me. Thanks oh, for coming definitely. on. Thanks and okay, Jim. Let's uh, jump into the news. All right. Uh, the first program. Okay, scuba program boils local boils. I, I keep wanting to say that we're boiling the, the Why scuba Why do you want to boil this child? <laughs> you know, maybe it's just one of the how twisted I am. Scuba program boys, local high school students. And local is what they used in the article. I don't consider them that local, even though they're not too far away from us. It's STARS International instructor Jacob Johnson of Lake in the Hills waits... Uh, God, why did I read that? <laughs> it basically it's a narrative they're trying to make the, the the story more interesting but what it comes what it comes down to is a scuba program for training at risk students and this is the Elgin school system uh over in Illinois and this is a program where they're taking you know students who wouldn't normally have an opportunity to be involved in anything with scuba and in fact some of these come from challenged families challenged economic economic backgrounds and they're introducing them to scuba after looking at it it seems like it would be a great a great idea you're taking uh, um, a situation uh, or a, a, a kid who might be at risk and, and in needing of some guidance maybe some strong guidance and uh, some confidence building and, and team building things and scuba is it yeah, and, and looking at this, it says Larkin's 
uh, fledgling scuba program is perhaps the most novel example of leadership efforts to turn around a school plagued by gang problems, flights, uh, fights, flights, they're trying to flight, fights, and failing test scores. And I've, I've always believed that you've got to keep the kids engaged. You've got to give them something to look for. You have to have some sort of hope. You know, if, if, if I look at uh, kids and children who don't have a focus and you get down into it, they seem to come from backgrounds where they really didn't have something to care about. You know, they didn't have pets. They didn't have hobbies. They didn't have activities. They didn't have that encouragement. So I think if you them, right. exactly you give them something that they can get sink their teeth into and show them that there's something other than you know the violence or you know no hope in the community or drugs or alcohol uh, give them something to look forward to. So I think this is an amazing program. What what uh, you know what what's interesting is just that they can get the funding for it. Uh, right. They said athletic ability or the ability to pay is not required. It's five thousand to six thousand dollars for the cost of lessons. Lessons, lessons. Gosh, lessons, dives, and gear is primarily covered by private donations, uh, including uh, the Top Shen uh, Main Base Scuba Diving International. Well, I, I guess what it's going to do too is it's going to teach these kids what we found out within the last couple of years how how great and addicting scuba diving can be. Um, you know, you. you it's a whole new world down there, and if you can expose somebody to that, um, that might give them the motivation to, to step out on the right foot sometime. Yep. And they said they have about 139 T's that are ri- teens. T's. Gosh. Teens. You are original- a tough time. To- <laughs> it is. Uh, maybe I should have had a drink or something. While 139 teens originally expressed interest, school officials managed to, to winnow down the field to truly at-risk kids and uh, closer to much closer to the maximum number of 50 allowed for the program. And uh, it looks like that in February 5th is when they make a final decision. Uh, and it looks like that the students who uh, that are interested in the program are excited about it. And I know right. I would have been. Yeah, absolutely. And it, when you're looking at it, too, that's a six-month program. This isn't just a, a simple open water certification for these kids. Um, you know, like if you were to read just the headlines on it, it's a six-month program where they're they're digging in deep, and uh, that's quite a commitment both from the sponsors, uh, the instructors, and the the school uh, to the kids. Um, for them to step into something like that for that kind of time period says a lot. It certainly does. Uh, the next article is we have a pint-sized ten-year-old becomes a certified scuba diver, uh, and and I know that this is probably nothing new of uh, having young children or kids I should say uh, get into scuba diving and get some training in but uh, the, the one thing that this instructor said is that not only is it a, a young younger diver but also is in size only four feet tall weighs 48 pounds right so a 10 year old that size uh, and it sounds like she's done very well uh, now in, in of anything you know, the, the underwater is kind of that great equalizer. I mean, you can, as long as you can get neutrally buoyant, you can have a heck of a lot on you. Right, and it and it is an equalizer because you know it it can show a person's grace and lack of it. Um, <laughs> but the key again that you said is is getting the buoyancy down. Um, and from there, you can do just about anything that you want to. Yeah, and and it looks like 
that uh, she, she was having a that she was really looking forward to it. You know, and what I I get nervous about with somebody that age is are they mentally ready for it? Are they going to be able to pick up the skills? And and she has a family that does it. She has uh, she's wanted to do it since she was five. Her dad's a certified diver. Her 20-year-old brother's a certified diver. They call her a water baby. Uh, at nine, she started, you know, learning to snorkel. So it wasn't, you know, one big step. Scuba was just the next step for her. Right. And the mental ability to do that. You touched on that. It is important because you can uh, seriously injure yourself or worse. Um, if you don't pay attention to what's going on, um, and there are different uh, thoughts on that, you know, from uh, nobody under the age of 18 or 20 should be diving all the way to the other side, that uh, 8, 9, and 10-year-old kids can dive. Um, I haven't seen it enough to, to form an opinion, but uh, just like anything else, when you're looking at giving a, a kid or a child responsibility it's all going to depend on that unique circumstance uh, i would have to believe yeah i agree i i know my son who is uh nine and my daughter's 11 i'm going to get them into the pool here probably in march we're going to get them into an introductory to scuba diving and you know i'll i'll take a look and see how they do and it might not be the time for them and or they might just love it and they'll follow in this girl's footsteps okay the next article is the Omaha Fire Department to purchase a speedboat for search and rescue efforts along the Missouri River appears to be dead in the water. Did I lose you, Jim? No, I'm. I should be here. Okay, okay. Yeah. Just awful quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> I, <laughs> Taking a I, nap. I'm not it off from time to time. You it just, wasn't that exciting of a story. <laughs> <laughs> just, just nudge me every now and then. Um, you know, I, no, but I was thinking as we were looking at this this story, um, our local fire department has got a. Um, a boat and uh, you know anything that's rated for uh, fire or rescue um, and is equipped properly is very expensive to do that um, I'll let you go ahead and go into the the story a little bit um, but that stuff is uh, it is costly and if you wanna you want the equipment it's you're gonna have to pay for it yeah, I, I, and I think it's probably just part of the economic times. And, you know, we don't live in Omaha, so we don't know what, you know, other issues are going on there, what their their budget's like. But I imagine just with the way the, this last year's been ec- economically that there's probably not money just flowing everywhere to spend. Uh, the cost of the boat would have been upwards of $35,000, which in, in boat terms doesn't really seem to be too bad. But uh, where it came down through in the discussions – was just what that total cost of that boat was going to be. And in their case, they were figuring it would be over a million dollars over the next decade, which, you know, you know, 35,000, if you multiply it by 10, you could buy the boat 10 times for 350. So there must be other things into that cost that are being factored in, you know, washing, maintenance, gas, servicing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there are. Um, but if I remember correctly in talking to our local fire chief about the boat um, that they have um, that price is is not that far out of line with uh, what we've got in our small local department and uh, you know I'm, I'm a pretty conservative uh, guy when it comes to government and uh, fiscally conservative I guess I would say and I'm not for a larger government 
but when it comes to uh, police and fire, um, you know, they're there for a reason, and uh, to hinder them in any way, I think, is a mistake. Yeah, I I agree. I think you know, at least by us, you know, we we live here. You know, you know, if you look at Bering County, there's more of Bering County out in Lake Michigan than there is on land. I mean, we just yeah, I know they share a lot of that responsibility with the Coast Guard, but there's a lot of water. And then you look at all the rivers that we have. You know, this St. Joe River comes snaking up, up and back. So, you know, every one of our fire departments has a, a rescue vehicle of that sort. And if you if you look at the boat that we have, you know, in the article they talk about, well, there's already other boaters out in the water. They're going to be able to pick somebody up. Uh, you know, the, why does the fire department need a boat? Well, if you look at that boat that we have, it has a special front end on it where they can flip the rack down. It's at water level, so if you're trying to rescue somebody and pull them out, it's a lot, it's a platform to work on. So it's it's designed for saving. It's not, you know, uh, somebody's other other boat. You know, and we're not saying that somebody out in the water shouldn't help a fellow boater, but when it comes to the point where the fire department has to respond and they need to help rescue somebody, uh, a boat definitely you know, fills in that piece and helps that department be more effective in their responsibilities. Uh, the last year, the Omaha Fire Department received uh, $350,000 in diving and scuba equipment uh, through donations that helped the diving team. So this proposal is just to take that department to that next step. So it'll be interesting to see uh, where that ends up going. The next article is uh, one, I don't necessarily think it was scuba related, but it just kind of caught my eye, and it's elastic water could eventually replace plastic or could be used in environmentally safe plastic. And I want to officially come out against plastic water because I don't think I can scuba dive in it. Well, I was just wondering with elastic water, does that mean when I do a belly flop it doesn't hurt? I don't know. Uh, You know, but I don't think I want to try and test it. So, so they're suggesting uh, this would replace containers, maybe? Well, this is out of the, and, and we'll have have this in the show notes, it's out of the website www.tomsguide.com. Uh, Burma, a national Malaysian national news agency, reports that Japanese scientists have created elastic water developed at Tokyo University. The new material consists mostly of water, 95% with an added two grams of clay and organic material, the resulting substance resembles jelly. It's extremely elastic and transparent. The invitation was originally revealed last week at the latest issue of the National Scientific Magazine. According to the articles, the new material is quite safe for environment and humans, and maybe in long term, a tool for medical technology, possibly to help wounded and surgically cut tissue remain close. They also report that by increasing the density, the new material could be used to produce elastic plastic materials or replace plastic altogether. This new aspect is still an investigation. Uh, however, successful scientists may have found a way to make the world a little greener. So I don't know if they're hoping to take this to a point to where this would actually become a container. You know, is it, is it, is it almost like taking some jello? You know, if I, if I thicken jello up to enough, you know, it could be something. You know, are we... <laughs> Some of the Jello that I've made, I, uh, I'm not too good in the kitchen. Mine's pretty <laughs> solid. <laughs> oh, oh <yeah. laughs> 
it's bad so, news. So, so you so you burned boiling water then? I did, I did, <laughs> and, and it still stuck to the pan. And I don't understand how I did that either. Yeah. So, but you know, I'm thinking that you know this is not going to be good for diving in. Yeah, you know, it's going to be hard to get through. It's going to clog. You know, can you imagine if I take my regulator filled with elastic water down to Kathy to have serviced? No. <laughs> Wonder how that would go over. <laughs> yeah. Now, now what could be interesting though is, I, is I'm betting that my that it'd be a little bit easier to dry out my uh, gear. Either that, or it it would be sticky. You could well. We have dove in some stuff where you've had to peel the stuff off of it, um, <laughs> you know, and maybe just it would come off in a layer or a sheet like a tear-off. That might be a good idea, a tear-off uh, covering for your wetsuit. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm sure people are going to come up with all sorts of ideas for it, but right now I just don't think it's going to it's gonna replace any water that I'm going to be diving in. Okay, and then the uh, last item before we call it quits for the night is, uh, and the cool gear, it would have been interesting to have Kathy stay on for this. Maybe I'll have to bug her next time I'm down the store. New antibacterial scuba mouthpiece has been introduced. And this is on www.divewire.com. We'll have a link again in the show notes. Uh, and what I guess is coming down is that over the last summers, there are some articles in the news where some of these tanks that you'll get on these dive boats where people are rinsing off in, actually aren't having the water circulated really well. In fact, there's more contaminants in the tanks on the dive boat than there is in the water that you're diving in that it's supposed to be rinsing off. Right. And I can believe that because I believe most of them are just a, a tub, are they not? Yeah, that's what they're saying. I mean, I'm I'm hoping to go on a dive boat and experience it, you know, and then maybe I'll go, I don't want my, my gear floating around in there. Right. Uh, but... Yeah. A nice liveaboard would be nice right about now. Um, in yeah. case anybody's out away from the Midwest, uh, winter has come back with a vengeance after spoiling us last week. So if you guys have got uh, 60, 70, and 80 degree weather, uh, we're certainly envious of you. Oh, uh, certainly. Yeah, it, it, gosh. You know, and and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute here, our ice dive from this last weekend. But we today's 14 degrees without the wind chill. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. then this last Saturday, what we it was like 36 when we were out doing the ice dive. Yeah, I think the temperature was 35 or 36 in the air. Um yep, outside of the water, yep. Well, I took that picture we had dive written in then the ice the night before and you could read it and then when we got there the next day it was completely cleared off. Right. And so, the snow snow layer on top of the ice was uh, all gone. It was down basically down to ice pack. Okay. Well, well, back to this this gear real quick. Uh, dive sites protection has been integrated directly into this uh, silicone. They're calling it medical grade, which I guess that means it's not caulk that I go down in a hardware store and buy. Uh, and they ensure that micro antimicrobial effects will never diminish. You can count on the, the uh, complete protection for the life of your your dive piece, your your mouthpiece. So, yeah, it makes sense. But then, on the other hand, I'm kind of thinking. Isn't it there already? I mean, I, I would kind of hope that my my mouthpiece isn't, you know, has got something in it or is at least designed away so it's going to be hygienic. Right now, what about you know if it's if it's going into the the rinse tank? What about all the other parts of the regulator that that you're soaking in the water as well? 
Um, you know, does this apparently uh, they've I, done I, testing on it, but uh, would it really work? My thought is what this is is about. I was going to get is you know what's on the mouthpiece, which I guess is what's coming in contact. And you know if you you know if you bite into your mouthpiece and you you make a crack into it, and then you know you you put in a tank and you know those how you know moisture could get into that crack and it's not going to dry out. So well, as long as that bacteria soup is moist, then it could build up and get to be worse. Okay, I see. So I, I'm guessing, but uh, so I don't know. It's we'll, we'll have to see. You know, I don't know if this is overhyped. If this is a big issue, it'd be interesting for people to comment. If you got a comment on it, uh, head out to Scuba Obsessed www.scubaobsessed.com and jump on the forums and tell us if you think it's something that you'd be interested in buying, or if you just think uh, that anything you've got now is good. Uh, for me, I'm probably going to take the risk. I'm, I, I'm willing to to go in a liveaboard and brave the bacteria, at least for now. I, I'd be willing to be a test subject if somebody would like to fund that. I'll uh, I'll go on board uh, one week with uh, with the the new improved mouthpiece, and if I don't get sick, we'll call it a success. But then you've got to put me back on for a second week, and uh, if I get sick that week, it'll just prove that. It wasn't a total waste of your money. Exactly. you got to do it at least two weeks, get them to pay for that. Uh, and then let's go ahead and talk about our dive this last weekend. For some reason, I just I almost forgot it. but uh, And I don't know how I forgot it. You know, this was this last Saturday, 1.30. We went back to the lake we dove two weeks before, which I thought it was kind of interesting that we went back to one so recently. And uh, I was kind of surprised how much... It had changed. Oh, the visibility was, you couldn't even really compare it. Um, I would say the visibility was at least uh, two to three times uh, better than what it had been two weeks prior. And uh, it did make it easier to find a hole to cut in the ice. Basically, we just we just ripped it open again where, uh, where we had cut earlier. Um, but it was, yeah. it was like a different site. But we were literally on top of the same spot. Yeah, it, it it was unbelievable. We had, uh, you know, because we, we went before, and I can remember, I, I just thought all I was running out of of dive light, you know, because I, I flashed my light around, and it went so far, but it was much clearer than when we went in July. In July, there were parts of that lake we went in, and we held the gauges up to your mask, and you couldn't read the gauge. We had to go shallow, or we had to go near the shore, seemed to be a little bit clear, mm-hmm. but... Uh, Two weeks ago was great, and this last week was amazing. I mean, yeah. and, and I and and what was nice was, you know, since last time was our first time ice diving, so we had the short line, you know, the the, the shorter collar, mm-hmm. uh, and this time we we put on how many feet was that? Do you think? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm thinking uh, approximately thirty feet um, worth of uh, line was fed out. Um, and we stayed inside uh, that 30-foot radius um, and kind of scouted around. Now, did you see anything, uh, any life down there? You know, I there's a couple times I thought I did, but you know, uh, nothing that I could verify. Now, now you saw something, didn't you? Yeah, well, I saw a uh, a big 
big crayfish. Uh, he was hiding out in a can. I was I was about ready to grab the can and and pull it out and uh, uh, help pick up down there, but uh, the crayfish had uh, made it a home, and he was backed in there, and he was looking like he was ready to defend it to the death. Uh, so rather than getting hurt, I left him alone. Um, but that was the only thing I saw. Now I did see some trails down there that would indicate maybe we uh, had a turtle or something going on down there, but uh, that was all I saw. Well, you you dove before I did, so if it had been after, it was probably me crawling along the bottom. No, so yeah, I was in there first, so it definitely wasn't wasn't Darren tracks on the bottom. Yeah, and uh, I, I used all that rope. I can remember pulling on the end, you know, doing the tug to get me more line, and uh, and uh, in this in this rope, it, so you can envision it as I as I had a harness underneath my BC, I had the rope connected to it. It comes out, and then we have somebody manning the line. So we we like to have a good contact. So I, you know, they can send the signals down the line, and we can send it up. So, you know, one pull was let out some more line. Two was pulling the slack, and three is pull me in now. And uh, but we had it all, tied all the way to shore. So the reel was on shore. It went out to the ice hole and then down. So uh, we, we had a, a good line to safety. And I and I was doing laps. There was some parts of it where I'd say I was only six feet deep, and then others we were probably, you know, 16, 18 feet. But that was amazing right. clarity. Right. And it was, if if somebody out there has never done it before, um, find find a good mentor or a teacher. Um, it is, it's an experience to look up at the bottom of a frozen lake. Uh, the bubbles, uh, the way that they collect under there, and the way that they'll, uh, the exhaust from your regulator will, will find the highest spot under there, um, and the light shining down through the ice—it's—it's uh, it's otherworldly. It's—it's—it's it's, it's something that you really do have to experience, if nothing else, yeah. just once. Even if you don't ever want to go back in the cold water again, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, it, it's something you got to try, and then you, you amaze and all your friends, you know, all all the people that I talked to who were even scuba divers, you know, think we're absolutely crazy, which we are, but it, it's a great experience. If you prep for it right, if you prime your wetsuit, it's comfortable. I, you know, it, there does get to, I could only stay down so long in a wetsuit and you start to get cold and it's time to go up because that's when it stops being fun and actually can be a little bit of a risk. Right. But, but you know, 15, 20 minutes, I think anybody can do. I don't care how much you're afraid of cold weather. And, you, you know, and I, I'm not comfortable cold. I don't like to be cold. And I had a good time. Right. It was it was enjoyable. And uh, it, it's something that you should, uh, should try. Now, did you happen to get any pictures of the way that the reel was set up uh, so people could see kind of what was going on? I forgot to take any pictures of that gear. I'll have to go through. Uh, if we find any, we'll throw them out there on the website. But I don't remember seeing any seeing any pictures. Uh, uh, but you know, Jim went first, then I dove, and then we had Don, who was only going to go in for what was it, five minutes? Yeah, and I've got I've got that on tape. I think where he says it's five minutes. So um, you know, I know he'll probably deny it in hindsight, but. That's what he said before he went in. Yeah, so we, we, we know what five minutes is. So there's like a, it's like time must move 
slower underwater? Like if I take my watch, you know, it's kind of like Einstein and approaching the speed of light. Is it something like that when you take your your watch under under the water so that it like slows down? Yeah, I think that's what happens. Um, and I'll we'll get some of those videos up um, later this week or, or over the weekend uh, from last week's dive, kind of show some of the conditions and things like that. That uh, and and you can have. focus in on the whale slap that we do as we get out of the water each time. <laughs> it's a I signature def- move. It is. I, I think we're going to, you know, uh, uh, on our 52nd episode, we'll have to stitch together all those flopping and flapping. And so we'll just have a montage of us floundering around on ice, land, docks, piers, it's, boats. It is embarrassing how un coordinated the rookies are compared to some of the old timers. Yeah, they, they just hop in, they hop out, you know, Don that first week sliding in like a seal, and then here we are, this floundering around. Uh, we have to make special thanks to all the crew who came out. You know, the first time it was just Don, Jim, and I, uh, still only three in the water, but we had quite a, a crew helping us out. We had Sir Larry, uh, we had Bob come out. Uh, who else came out? Um, we had uh, oh, there was there was a couple people in, and it always seems too. In addition to the regulars, people just drive by and and ask, uh, "Are you going out in the water?" <laughs> yeah. Well, first thing is, what body are we looking for? Did we <laughs> we lose a body? Right. Why are uh, you? What are you guys looking for today? Yeah, and and they want to know are there any good fish down there. Right. And yep. and we did and have some. There were we did have some, no fish. Nope. There were ice fishermen out there, so that's what I kind of wonder. If I can't, if we can't see fish when we're down there, of course we're blowing bubbles. Maybe another reason we need a rebreather. Right. But, How smart would those <laughs> fish be if we could see them? Yeah, I, I guess I answered my my own question, but there were uh, people ice fishing out there, and then we had dual shanties this week, so we were, we we had a step up. You know, we had a two room. Oh, that was so nice. Um, you know, yeah, we had uh, the club club shanty out there, and Bob brought his his out. And uh, I have to say, his was very nice. He had uh, um, his was carpeted, and he had uh, some furniture in there, a chair, and you know, so that was a step up. Um, but in all seriousness, being able to get out of the wind, being able to have it, uh, you know, fifteen, twenty, or thirty degrees higher than than the the ambient. Wow, does that make a big difference? It uh, makes it enjoyable. Yeah, and we brought our ice buds this time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we ha- had the pallet, which that made a difference. Uh, we stood up on a pallet, which gave us a little bit of airspace above that ice, and uh, and I think that's part of the reason why I had more dive time this time. Right, being able to to keep your body temperature up just a little bit more and uh, preserve whatever heat that you've got. And and you know the worst thing about this weekend? Uh, it ended too quickly. It ended too quickly, and we don't have another dive planned. Oh, you're right. You're right. We, but we when we, we do, go ahead. We, we do have a dive plan? No, not a dive plan. But I'm looking forward to uh, the uh, our world underwater next month. Yep, we have our world underwater coming up. Uh, I think we're it, it runs Friday the night Friday 19th of February through the 21st. And it looks like we're going to be uh, heading into Chicago on the 20th. Right. 
on the yeah. Saturday. Yep. And so the website for that, if anybody's interested, is www.ourworldunderwater.com. And that's at the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont, Illinois. So, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, February 27th, we have the Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival. Right. Now, I don't know if I'll be able to make that. Are you planning on going attending that? I'm thinking about it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got it marked off in the calendar. So, you know, it's going to be, we'll just have to see uh, how much we can go. Now, it looked like somebody was going diving this weekend, but uh, I don't have plans yet. But, you know, somebody popped in and said, hey, you know, right? come on, Sunday, we, we need somebody. We got this hole open in the ice, and we just need another person to fill it. So Right, Which exactly. I, I'm, I'm qualified to fill holes. So Right. So. <laughs> A plugger. A plugger. So uh, yeah, we've got that coming up. Uh, so I just can't. I just can't wait. And then uh, we. So uh, next week, I think we're going to have another guest lined up. We'll we'll tease that as the the week goes along, and mm-hmm. we'll work out the technical details. Like tradition, we've been running, starting to show about thirty minutes late. So you know, maybe we can start this next one on time. I'm not. I'm. I'm not too sure. Baby steps. I've said it before. It's baby <laughs> steps. It applies baby. to everything. It applies to everything. Well, sometimes I think that's all I can take are baby steps. So uh, we'll do that. And then also, upcoming episode, we're prob- we're going to do something uh, with a uh, decompression chamber. We're going to do a chamber yeah. dive. Yep. That that so, ought to be interesting. Yep. So uh, you know. Uh, get ourselves narked up without going underwater and see how we behave. So uh, if you've got any ideas of anything that we should try going down, I understand that they give us uh, like a styrofoam ball and a cup to take down with us so we can see how that goes. But uh, it'd be interesting to, you know, if you've got, you know, any anybody who's done a chamber dive or a, even a deep dive down to 125 and uh, there were tests you did down there. Like I know when we did our deep dive at Gilboa, we did tic-tac-toe. Uh, you know, just to kind of show you that it does take a little bit uh, extra to think. So right. if you have any of that, uh, go ahead and drop us a line, you know, either in the forums or uh, look at our contact information, how to get us, or or Twitter us with a, a question. So looking forward to that. Yeah, you know, I think, think that'll be an experience. Do you have anything else before we call it a show? Um, no, I think we've touched on it. Uh, I think we've got to have a get our heads together and plan another dive but uh, we'll do that off the air certainly will and we want to thank uh, Kathy from uh, Just Add H2O again for coming on that was www.justadh20.us.com if you want to visit their website uh, it's, that's where we've bought most of our gear and we've had excellent service there and uh, we know there's lots of scuba local dive shops around the U.S. where you can get the same type of service. So until next week, uh, go out and get wet. And I'm Dim. I'm 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 Dim. I'm Darren. <laughs> You've I'm, had a heck of a night. And I'm Jim. <laughs> Everybody have fun and dive safe.